Dr. Philip Calabrese joins me this time on Your Rancher Radio, the podcast. And if you don't know Philip, he is a master mathematician and teacher, a professor of numbers as well as a physicist who happens to love the Arantia book in his almost 50 years of teaching at the University of California in San Diego and writing. He has come up with some very interesting ideas over the years and decades. One of them was the statistical probabilities he worked out that the Arantia book was not written by human beings. Another is his repudiation of the Big Bang Theory and why scientists are wrong about accidental causation. The belief that creation came into its own existence spontaneously, Calabri says physics can prove that's not true. So let's listen in to my chat with Dr. Philip Calabrese and explore the mind of a mathematician with his thoughts firmly about the universe at hand. Tell me about your history. What is? Tell me about you. Tell our listeners who Philip Calabrese is, and you know how you got to be a mathematics teacher and in San Diego and all that. If you could, a brief history. Well, okay. I was uh, I was raised Roman Catholic and uh, went through the parochial school for actually, I guess it would be thirteen years, uh, including kindergarten. And through high school, with uh, you know the um, Dominican priests, uh, all boys high school. So we we studied the Summa Theologica by Thomas Aquinas, and so I got quite a bit of uh, uh, Catholic education, including uh, some of the religious philosophy. And uh, but you know at, at oh, about uh, then I went to the secular college and uh, Illinois Institute of Technology, and uh, had an opportunity to uh, go to um, you know when I graduated and for graduate school had an opportunity to go to. Berkeley on a scholarship and a, and what they called an alternate scholarship to Harvard, which I guess meant that if anybody was struck down on by lightning on the way to accept, then they would give me <laughs> some money. Uh, when I asked my parents, uh, uh, well, you know, I'm thinking either Berkeley or Harvard, they said, well, we've heard of Harvard, but where's this Berkeley place? <laughs> So this was 1968, uh, and uh, so I, I went to uh, Harvard. They didn't give me the money, and uh, I ended up going back to my alma mater, Illinois Institute of Technology, uh, as a rich graduate student because they, I got a, a three-year NASA traineeship. So that started uh, me uh, on the way to getting uh, uh, an offer in 1968 to go to, uh, to the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey to, for my first uh, full-time job. Well, actually, I, I did uh, a year at, at IIT before that. So I, I was there, and um, at that point I got married, and I didn't have any conflicts. And before I, you know, I, I said, you know, uh, I had put the Catholicism aside at about age 23 uh, when I lost my first girlfriend because I was uh, not 
uh, able to to uh, meet her expectations. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I I ended up uh, starting reading the. Uh, I, I decided I wanted to know what my connection to God was if it wasn't going to be the Catholic Church. And so I, I started thinking, uh, well, let me see. Uh, I've got, um, I'm a Ph.D. in mathematics now. Uh, I'll just take on this topic as a, as a research thing. So I said, well, the first thing to do is be to listen to, uh, hear what uh, this fellow Jesus had to say about about religion and and God and and very quickly I realized well he keeps talking about the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God if I could just figure out what he means then I'll know what he says about uh, my connection and you know I'd gone through very carefully Matthew Mark and Luke uh, well I was in the Luke very carefully doing that. And uh, going it over it like you know a mathematician would, line for line, only the the, the words that were attributed to Jesus. Mm-hmm. The red and line I realized, version. Uh, yeah. Well, I can I can figure out what he's talking about this kingdom of God. Well, in Luke, the religious authorities came to him and says, "Where where is this kingdom of God coming? When is this coming?" And he says, well, it's not coming with fanfare. It's not, you know, if it's not outside, it's, it's really the kingdom of God is within you. At least that was the footnote. And, I, and that just became an insight. I said, of course, it has to come from my own mind. It can't be something external. At that moment, I had a religious experience that uh, went on for more than five or ten minutes, uh, in which, you know, it was a complete surprise. I felt there was, I realized there was another mind in the room, <laughs> and I literally turned around to see if there were someone there, and of course I saw nothing, but uh, there was a recognition that, yes, this is happening, um, and I felt the love of God. So I best in this, well, I lost my chain of thought for a moment, thinking about spirit and matter, and when I came back, it was still occurring. I still felt that presence. I felt the love, and I, how long am I going to be this way, I thought. Back came the thought, just as long as you require it. Mm. So that settled me down. I sort of relaxed and basked in this experience, lost my uh, presence uh, again or two or three times, came back to the present, and sure enough, it was still occurring. So after I was absolutely sure that that was my connection, I said, okay, I guess I can practice the way I, uh, being the way I was. And within 15 seconds, it just seemed, the spirit presence seemed to get closer, and then it just, Seemed to I couldn't distinguish it any f- further from my own thinking. So uh, at that point, um, I, st- I didn't tell anybody about this. It was a sacred experience, uh, and I started talking about uh, you know spirit and stuff like that. And a friend of mine, Bob Hunt, 
And his brother, we were in San Francisco, his brother says, you know, that sounds something like something that I heard from a hitchhiker, this book something called like the Tarantula. Yeah. And his brother found this book, the Urantia book, in the metaphysical bookstore in Berkeley, and he said, you know, Phil, when I saw that book, a little halo went over my head, and I said, I think I'll buy this for Phil. So sure enough, in August of 1970, he presented this book to me. I think it was on 21st. Is that right? Really? Jesus' birthday? Yeah. And, you know, we were, we were having a little party there, and he shows, he, you know, hadn't looked at it himself very much. And it was love at first sight. Um, I came back, started reading it, and I finished the book in about four and a half months. Of course, I had some time in the summer. And uh, so uh, we had just started a uh, job at uh, Cal State Bakersfield, uh, California State College at Bakersfield. That was the only job I could get uh, in 1970 with the Vietnam War still raging and the butter from uh, uh, had stopped, you know, butter and guns mm-hmm. from uh, Lyndon Johnson. Well, the butter had stopped. Uh, all the money that was going in education had stopped. And, uh, you know, not very many people had um, uh, any hiring going on. And so we went to Cal State Bakersfield, supposedly an experimental college. Well, uh, they had uh, anybody could give a one hour, one credit hour course uh, on anything. And so I said, well... I put up the first paragraph of, or so of the Urantia book on some uh, uh, and places on campus that I was going to be giving a one-credit course on the Urantia book. <laughs> what year was this? <laughs> and I, I put in on in this blurb, you know, uh, in the minds of mortals of Urantia, oh that being the sure. name of your planet. There is much. I put this <laughs> there on a. On That's funny. for the course. <laughs> <laughs> what was the response? So, uh, that, 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 you know, launched us, uh, me on, uh, you know, and I, I was raised in Chicago. I'd never heard about it since I went, until I got to California. But, uh, you know, Chicago was headquarters. So uh, when I visited Chicago, I think probably that December, I uh, I visited uh, 533 West Diversity Parkway, met uh, Christy and uh, Edith Cook and a bunch of other late old ladies, <laughs> and um, so that started the my uh, my association with the Urantia book. Well, I was you know going back to the mathematics. I was always interested in mathematics. You know, in the fourth grade, uh, I, you know, when we were t- asked to pull out the book, I looked at it. And I loved this topic, and uh, so uh, I basically got a uh, B.S., M.S., and Ph.D. in mathematics with a minor in physics, and. Uh, that I wanted to investigate the relationship between spirit and matter. And uh, so I started to think about that and, and write papers and 
present uh, at various uh, conferences, uh, you know, way back in the 1970s, and uh, have continued. Uh, so you've really then, been a part uh, of. Uh, you've been an underlying, sort of consistent part of the Urantia book, as far as being someone, perhaps a, a, not a spokesperson, but someone there to explain what's happening. Um, isn't that right? I mean, you, you've sort of taken an analytical, almost a scholarly approach and shared that with people who come into contact with yes. the book. Yes, very definitely. That's uh, research mathematics uh, uh, in uh, uh, logic and probability. Uh, invented a, an algebra of fractions for uh, handling uncertain conditional information when you combine uncertain conditional information uh, you have to keep uh, the information as fractions well, the denominator is the condition and the numerator is the uh, proposition that or event that you're identifying given that condition and then you uh, I was able to work to get work up a, uh, an algebra of fractions that would more uh, faithfully represent how to uh, combine conditional logic with conditional probability. So I, I spent a lot of time and, and wrote a lot of papers and wrote, you know, just published a book in 2017 and another paper, uh, oh, I guess it was uh, last year, was it? Maybe uh, 2020. So I continued doing that. At the same time, uh, I have been publishing papers about the Urantia book, and uh, one of them, uh, a statistical test of the hypothesis, hypothesis that uh, human beings wrote the Urantia book. And, uh, you know, I spent, uh, I taught statistics a lot, uh, about 45 times. Uh, and so I used that inf knowledge to design a test uh, that is published uh, and uh, I event eventually came to the realization in the test that uh, well the probability of this being a human uh, product was less than 1 in 50 million. So you are a, a, a mechanist by nature clearly at an early age, you figured out that you love math, you love numbers, you love crunching them. They have meaning to you. Uh, you had some spiritual influence. It sort of waned. But then you decided to go back to it, which I find it very interesting. And you were asking the right questions. You asked the right questions, and you have this brilliant spiritual experience that doesn't ever go away. Was it? A, so at that point, you must have determined that your relationship with God made sense on an intellectual and now a spiritual level, whatever God is. And then also, now we get to the point where you've been, uh, you are uh, trying to examine the Urantia book and if, from a validation point of view. Did you, and you're trying to statistically prove that the Urantia book could not have made so many assertions and be correct if they were in fact guessing, because they would have had to have been since at the time the Arantia book was written, many of the assertions they make had not been proven by science. Uh, so now we get to this point. Did you do this uh, 
because you wanted to be able to prove for yourself that the Arantia book was valid, as if there may be some lingering doubts? When did you become positive that the Arantia book was, in fact, a revelation and that it was not written by men? Well, I think I was pretty uh, certain very soon. When I read, you know, went into the book, it answered all of the questions practically that I had uh, about, you know, Catholicism and uh, and religion. Uh, so I I was very impressed with it from the beginning. As I said, I I was prepared for this because I'd had this uh, religious experience, and so a few months later, this Urantia book shows up, and it seems to corroborate all the sort of vague ideas that I had uh, previous to to finding it. So I was uh, pretty much certain uh, that I, it was what it purported to be from the beginning when I first started, started reading it. As I said, I, I devoured it in four and a half months. I read the f- part four first, and then I read the whole thing through, uh, and then I uh, gave this course uh, 25 students uh, or more were were in the course. Mm. Uh, it's an amazing and, uh, story. We, <laughs> we sold that many books, so it was to pr- prove it to others, mm. yeah, uh, and to those who had come after me uh, that this book uh, could not have been uh, a product of just human uh, uh, guesswork, you know, insight, and and uh, because uh, they knew things that we have only now subsequently discovered that just could not have been, and and they don't make systematic errors. So they use people's uh, ideas and writing, but uh, somehow somehow they always avoid uh, whatever error it is, uh, including... So a good example. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, including, for instance, uh, the book will uh, corroborate... uh, material about uh, fossils, uh, Peking, uh, Java Man, Neanderthal, uh, about six or so of them, but it never mentions uh, Piltdown Man, uh, which uh, was, of course, a a two-fossil fraud that uh, there were 500 scholarly papers written about it uh, until Ashley Montague uh, and I think one other man challenged it in the early 50s. Well, by that time, the Arantia book had uh, been written and uh, was in the publisher's hands. And, you know, it doesn't mention Piltdown Man, but it does say you'll never find a missing link for the simple reason there wasn't any. Well, if that was what Piltdown Man was, uh, a fraud with, uh, you know, an ape's... Uh, jaw uh, coupled with a human skull, something along that line that uh, was an early fossil, and then later on it just didn't fit in. Well, if the Arantia book had mentioned this fossil, it would have discredited the book. Well, it doesn't. In fact, it says there was no such fossil uh, again, before uh, it was ever discovered, as a, or let's say challenged seriously in, in the early 50s. So, uh, and it also, for instance, predicted that uh, in the not-too-distant future, uh, 
when you have built better telescopes, uh, you will see no less than 375 million galaxies, million star systems in the far out uh, outer space. Well, that was not only not um, predicted; it was the opposite was predicted. They said, "No, you can't. No, you can't see anything that far out." Uh, you know, after all, uh, the Big Bang didn't have time to uh, uh, produce such things uh, so far out. Well, <laughs> that gets us to the uh, the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. And that is the subject of the symposium that you gave. Before we get to that, I, I, and I do want to explore that because I'm very fascinated by your writings. I was actually reading a paper that you wrote in 2019 that I wanted to share uh, but you you made the there was a statement that you made about the the connection between the spiritual and the material, and I've been reading uh, and of course I saw some of the symposium from this last weekend on the Zoom conference that they did the sign in of course you are a part of, and um, it got me to thinking about the there was a presentation given by Dr. Jenny Martin, and she talks about the thought adjuster and the energy wave that you, you each of us puts off because we are in fact electromagnetic uh yeah. biological units really we're we're constantly uh absorbing energy and also probably putting it off we know very little about that in our science today certainly we know even far less in the mental sciences but i i had pondered and i'd wondered if you'd given thought to it because i knew we were going to have this interview but uh uh if it were possible is it possible, do you think, that uh, that certain people are more compatible because of the energy they put off, and, and certain people are less? So, you know, the old expression, he puts off a, a bad vibe. There actually may be some proof of this, some actual physical proof that people do put off a kind of energy depending on, on either their outlook on life or how they feel at that particular moment. If you're angry, you might put off a different... You know, they've been calling it chakra for a long time. But I'm wonder, wondering, you being the physicist, if there, there'd be a physiological way of proving that we do put out a form of energy. And I just wanted to run that by you. What do you think about that? Well, I certainly wouldn't discount it, the possibility. Uh, I think we do have, uh, you know, a spiritual uh, aura uh, of some sort. Uh, I can recall that Adam and Eve could communicate with each other uh, over miles due to some... Uh, Gas, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an so, interesting... I'm glad you brought that up. Have, have you thought about that? What gas would that have been? Uh, a kind of a gas that sits in their inner ear that allows them to communicate sort of like a Bluetooth. Uh, I, I always found that a very fat, and they don't spend a lot of time on it, so we may never know what that is, but it would be interesting to know what that phenomena was caused by. As in the case of a lot of things, the longevity, you know, when you think about the fact that uh, they clearly say that Van and Amadon lived for well over 150,000 years through this regenerative ability that they had by eating a certain substance of food that could convert light and some other form of energy into cell regeneration. I mean, these are just at the edge of the precipice of what we're now discovering today uh, as we try to 
perfect our biological units, so to speak. Uh, so I know that's not your area of expertise, but I, I do find it fascinating that there are a lot of things that your Rancho book mentions in addition to what you've stated that are just at the, the, the ice, the tipping point of so many amazing discoveries that are just behind the veil of, of secrecy at this point. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, there's a lot of them. There's the one about the fact that uh, all, all uh, hum, uh, not well, humans, but all animals, apparently, maybe plants too, have a way of uh, detecting the magnetic uh, field to to know which way north is, yeah, including us, including us birds also too. I think they d- discovered it in birds originally, and then they started yeah. to realize every you know we have a little bone in our nose that magnetically attracted. Uh, of course, my wife doesn't possess that uh, thing because <laughs> she could never find her way around anything. But uh, uh, maybe it's more well, predominant you know, in men. Who knows? It is that, uh, it, it's Apparently not, as they say, not an, uh, uh, it's not on, uh, how did they, they say it in a negative way. Oh. It, it, uh, it, it is to some degree uh, av- uh, available or uh, existent with human beings. But the point is that if we can uh, detect have mag- this kind of electromagnetic yeah. sensitivity, why not have, uh, uh, you know, there might be some uh, ways to, uh, for that to have been used for other things besides knowing which way north is. Uh, it may have been part of a communication uh, possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have also this tendency for, you know, people to think of the same thing at the same time uh, right. in conversation or uh uh, just, uh, you know, that's a good point. You're right. around and all of a sudden that happens. So there's a lot that we don't understand about, uh, the mind. And certainly our physicists aren't helping much because they refuse on, on the whole to believe that we have any free freedom of choice. They tend to believe, Einstein included, that uh, everything is determined by the physics. Energy in, energy out, and you really only think you have uh, a free choice, a free will of some sort. And, uh, you know, uh, they're trying to generate or generate consciousness out of physics and chemistry. In other words, they're saying that it's uh, to them. It's a, it's an inherent quality that does does not denote uh, uh, an external source or an external mind, and that's part of the reason we can sort of segue into the Big Bang. The element of the Big Bang is that it was uh, unintentional causation or accidental or spontaneous causation. <laughs> and if you're a Urantia book reader, the one of the first lessons you learn is that none of this is possible without a universal mind, that mind was a prerequisite to matter. Mind, yeah. uh, if you can say, on a timeline, came first. So let's talk about that for a minute. The main thesis, and I read a portion of your paper that you presented at the symposium, is about the Big Bang. So explain to the listener today what the current theory is 
about Big Bang and how they explain it, the current scientific model of the Big Bang. All right. Um, well, it was uh, the observations that further out we look, it seemed like the uh, light coming from out there was shifted in frequency or wavelength toward the red, uh, less energy. And the further out we look, it seemed like uh, it was even redder. Uh, the idea being uh, there are certain patterns of various chemicals, uh, elements, you know, that uh, when they emit light, they emit it in certain frequencies corresponding to the energy levels that are being uh, shifted. Uh, so that we know a characteristic pattern for each element when it uh, when it has uh, electron uh, shifts and it emits photons, uh, they are always in certain frequencies, and we can recognize those frequencies. Well, just like a, uh, an automobile, as it comes toward you, uh, it's got a higher sound, you know, it goes, the same thing happens to light. Uh, If the object is moving away, it's a lower frequency, and if it's moving toward you, it increases that frequency. So it's possible to tell how fast an object is moving away if you know how much it shifted relative to what it normally does. So by, by looking at that, Hubble, not the telescope, the man, uh, was Ed, able Edwin. to, uh, came up, he came up with a graph that says, well, uh, about, um, uh, you know, every 3.2 a million, 3.26 million light years uh, further distance, the the recession is another 43.5 miles per second. And, you know, you double that and you get double 43.5 miles per second. And as you go out further, you get faster and faster. Well, it turns out you can reverse the process and... Um, uh, find out how long it took for that material to get out there if it's going that fast and that far. And it turns out that it's a very easy calculation that you come up with uh, the time being about four, 13.9 billion years, under 14 billion years, that this process would have had to start if it's just all, you know, uh, linear uh, a linear relationship between the distance and the, the recession velocity, well, then it all had to start less than 14 billion years ago from a, uh, some kind of a dense uh, energy. So that was the start of the Big Bang idea. And as time has gone on, uh, there have been 
difficulties with it, uh, but it caught on enough so that people started figuring out ways to uh, modify the theory uh, so that it conceivably could explain uh, these their various things that were happening. One of the most important was that they found a lot of uh, fairly structure, uh, great structure, way far out. And, you know, 13 plus billion years, uh, years uh, light years away. So uh, how did it get out there so fast if there was this big bang? And then now it's sending light back to us 13 plus billion mm. years ago. How in the world did all that, those galaxies form so quickly out there so that they could send light back to us? Well, uh, you know, that was not something they expected to have to explain. Well, what they did was they came up uh, with something called space inflation. Not only, not the material moving out, but the space that held the material spreading out. And they had to make it spread faster than the speed of light in order to get it out there right away and then it, uh, you know, the theory could somehow uh, explain how uh, 375 million galaxies formed very soon, mm -hmm. and now many more billions of galaxies, uh, and how the background radiation could be so even everywhere. It must have gone out there faster than uh, light by a factor of a thousand. Well, a thousand times the speed of light, the background radiation managed to get out there so that now it's it's very uniform and uh, doesn't have any uh, particular structure to it. All right, so just for uh, just to catch me up and make sure I'm on the same page. So uh, Hubble determined redshift uh, moving objects, solar objects moving away to and fro. So if it's moving away from us, it's a redshift. They've identified certain frequencies that help us to determine uh, the movement, the speed, uh, the direction, so forth. And they through, through that, they extrapolated that the farthest that they could see uh, this happening was 13.8 billion years. Now, from when I was growing up, it was a, it was a lot less than that. It, it has, since my childhood, which was... 30 years ago, it's it's increased. They've gone from, do you happen to remember what they originally thought that the age of the universe was back in the 70s? Didn't they have it like, it was still, it was a billion years, maybe 2 billion, 4 billion. Well, they knew the Earth, the sun was at least 6 billion. Uh, yeah, they, the, uh, right. well, the planet, you know, the Earth, they had, um, that was another example of something the Urantia book knew uh, before we seemed to know it, uh, our scientists, uh, we had an estimate of about 2 to 12 billion years uh, for the age of the Earth. And uh, then they kept refining it until they uh, arose or uh, arrived at the number that the Urantia books. When did they do that? Uh, when do you recall they... they years ago. Yeah, so what, around what time did they determine... That Earth was six billion. When when did they come to that? Was it through carbon dating and things of that nature? When did they actually figure that out? Was it from the uh, 
Uh, it's hard to know because I, I didn't I didn't realize that I thought that in the 1930s science had already determined that the Earth was six billion years old, but that's not true. Well, it's actually four and a half oh, billion. Four and a half billion. The Sun is yeah. six billion years old. Well, yeah, the sun is older, obviously, uh, and it was there before the planets uh, were extruded, according to the Urantia book, by uh, a dark uh, gravity body, very heavy, uh, that uh, essentially when uh, the sun was in, uh, it was a variable star, and it would, variable stars get, you know, expand and contract. That's why they get brighter and and then dimmer as they expand and then contract. There's sort of, uh, there's a little bounce, I guess, going on. Uh, and as it gets larger, uh, this passing body uh, became uh, so, so close that it could pull out parts of the sun uh, and, and did. It was a, a partial disruption of the sun and and that's what formed the the planets, uh, and they're at an angle not equal to, not equal to the angle of the sun's equator. They're off uh, by several degrees. Uh, not to mention all the wild. Uh, it's not from a condensation kind of model. Otherwise, they'd be all in the same plane. Right. Right. Um, so, Is it uh, still you know, consistent? Haven't haven't accepted that yet. No, they haven't. Uh, they still. What do they? What does current science say? Is the origin of our solar system? Well, the stir, current current science is still holding to the idea that we had a condensation kind of uh, a situation. You know uh, that it just uh, formed from uh, the material. Uh, getting uh, denser until the sun uh, exploded or lit something? Up, lit up, mm. uh, you know, because uh, it, gravitational uh, getting uh, more and more dense at, at the center until, you know, nuclear uh, fission or you know, fusion started. Uh, and, and so uh, the residual uh, material in the... Uh, that isn't close to the sun, then uh, coalesce to form the planets. Well, the Urantia book says that's a very popular way for solar systems to start. It just doesn't happen to be the way ours did. Well, there there have Uh, been, I would add, that in the recent years, the last five years, there's been a couple of early studies that that seem to indicate that there was a passing universe at some point or a passing system of some uh, that that moved and made... yes. These very uh, ellip- very long ellipses. Uh, I think Sedna was one of them. Uh, you know, it's got a, an orbit that's so far out. How in the world did it have such a uh, an orbit? Well, the Arantia book says, well, we captured some of the material from this this passing dark body that had tributaries far out because it was so. Uh, so heavy and so massive, right? Uh, and it had planets that uh, we captured, and that the evidence of that is our retrograde motion. Very important, yes. Retrograde motion, in folks. In our solar system, that mm-hmm. never occurs unless there's been some kind of a 
a collision uh, of new material. Otherwise, everything would be orbiting in the same uh, counterclockwise. Uh, spin would be that way, and orbits would be that way. But we have some strange uh, orbiting uh, going on in our solar system. Uh, and and their answer to that is, well, there must have been some kind of a passing object. They buy that, but they're thinking it had happened after the, the planets were formed, mm. rather than as caused by the, uh, I see. the uh, causing the solar system. Mm -hmm. uh, to form, planetary system to form. But uh, they still have to have something like that, otherwise they can't explain these very, very uh, long uh, orbits, uh, very, very elliptical orbits by, by, uh, by material. Yeah. They're, they're getting there, but uh, they haven't quite come to uh, realize it yet. And, of course, we would love for these scientists and astrophysicists to actually read Part 2 of the Arantia book, and they may just gain some insight, uh, which would help them win a Nobel Peace Prize. But uh, I digress. <laughs> so let's get back to the Big Bang, because the real issue here is the difference between, and I think it's what drives science today. I've, I've spoken of this about scientism, naturalism, whatever you want to call it, but it's the belief that if science can't explain it, then it probably hasn't happened. And that's where they get into divergence with true religion or spirituality. They, as you stated, uh, scientists, whether it's Einstein, Hubble, they assume that there is no mind involved and that energy is spontaneous and inherent, gravity spontaneous, inherent, and that there is nothing that would indicate, at least physically, that there would be a, a god. And this is why science is basically atheistic to this point. Now, there's a couple of things about the Big Bang. You mentioned one of them is the balloon theory where there is no center. There's no center, according to this current Big Bang theory, that it's a well, balloon. That's right, that's Einstein's. However, everything else in the universe would indicate the opposite because even down to the atomic level, you always have a nucleus and you always have material that is spinning around. Uh, yes. And and that's part of your thesis, isn't it? It is. It is. I, I the uh, we we uh, I've asked people. Well, why doesn't the universe the universe have a center? I mean, well, their their attitude is well. What do you want to do? Go back to Ptolemy? Uh, <laughs> well, wait a minute. No, uh, I just want to go back to having a center. <laughs> it used to be the Earth. <laughs> then we realized it was the sun, but then it really isn't the sun. It's this, you know, maybe the center of the galaxy. Now that we have a whole bunch of galaxies, why, how come it, they don't have a center of mass or a center of inertia? Uh, uh, they don't want to talk about that possibility. Even though they now have found this great attractor <laughs> in our uh, galaxy, and they don't understand how, why it's so massive that, uh, that there's a uh, uh, such a great attractor in our cosmos. And tell everybody what an attractor is. Well, it's it's uh, a, an area that uh, seems to have stars moving around it or toward it. Uh, 
It's like a so wheel. It a, yeah, it's like a wheel. Very gravity, uh, you know, high gravity to be able to to move stars toward it. And is it your? Uh, uh, do you think it's a black hole? A black hole are usually former stars that have sort of the gravity has become so intense that it, it sort of collapses in on itself. Is that is that my understanding of what a black hole is? Or is there? I know there's dark matter. I, I mean, basically, the concept is uh, is that that uh, the uh, the mass gets so large, or the density gets so large that even light can't escape. Uh, from from the body, uh, and the Arantia book describes how uh, this happens, and then that actually eventually uh, heat uh, and pressure take, uh, get the better of it, and it explodes, uh, and so we have a massive uh, supernova uh, kind of thing. Now, is that uh, different from, say, a dark uh, island of space that they mention? In the Arantia book, uh, what's the difference between what they call a dark island of space and yes. what we would call a black hole? Well, I think the dark island is a much bigger area. In other words, a black hole is probably fairly small. In fact, uh, you know, they don't have to be very large at all. Uh, whereas a dark island is just a lot of dark matter. Uh, that is so extensive that it forms the um, it, it's the main uh, gravitational feature. It it uh, it controls the, the luminous material. Mm. One of the things that we you know what do we do? We looked at Andromeda, uh, the galaxy, mm -hmm. a nearby one. And by looking at it, uh, you know, it's uh, somewhat on an angle. We could tell uh, one side is coming toward us and the other side is going away. In other words, we could, we could uh, get its spin rate mm -hmm. and also a distance from the center. Well, we can therefore see that the, the whole galaxy is spinning so rapidly that something must be holding it together because the luminous material, there isn't enough of it to keep it from just flying apart. It's, it's Something is holding it together. Orbiting so quickly mm -hmm. uh, that uh, if there wasn't other material there to hold it together, uh, massive, with mass, it would be flying apart. So... When we realize that there must be something else there, they call it dark matter, and uh, we've never seen it, but we see its effect. So, yes, there's dark matter, and there's also these uh, dark islands, but as far as our uh, own uh, so-called great attractor, the Arantia book describes that there are uh, this region in which there are uh, these dark gravity bodies around the central uh, universe mm. that uh, are very, very massive, and that you know they they describe the the thing as uh, uh, two two regions that are tubular, and one is uh, uh, has a certain diameter. These go all the way around Havona, 
And the other one is arranged, you know, the other way, and it's its transverse diameter is 50,000 times the, the earlier, the first one. Uh, I finally figured, I finally was able to draw uh, a, a diagram of this description, but it, it it's an architectural thing of the grand universe or of the the whole uh, master universe. These things hold those galaxies way out in outer space in a circular orbit. Uh, well, in opposite orbits. So the Urantia book says everything is not just uh, receding, but rather there are alternate or- orbits around the central uh, organization uh, that they refer to as Havona not to, and Paradise, mm-hmm. and that these dark gravity bodies are... Uh, circling and uh, above and below and around so that we don't even see uh, the, uh, we don't see the the, the central universe from uh, our area uh, even close by apparently it's uh, something we've been able to do now to get the light to go all the way around and looks as though you know you're r- looking right through it uh, somehow uh, light is not absorbed or uh, reflected by these dark gravity bodies. I almost so kind of envision them as being a... That, yeah. how to how it keeping the whole universe uh, circling rather than just flying apart. It's almost like a low-pressure system in a hurricane, you know? Uh, and then there's a comment where they, when they talk about, I've always wondered this, but uh, when they say that a, a master physical controller and all of the the various uh, agencies that come before the universe begins to take shape, they they do something that involves retreating at right angles, and that's how they get the initial spin to start to take place within yeah, a nebula. You know the, what I'm talking uh, about? Organizers. Yeah, uh, the force that's, organizers. Uh, the primary and secondary transcendental. Space Force organizers. Um, they are, uh, you know, a different kind of a being, and that they uh, they initiate these the sp- orbits, the spin of these galaxies, and then they leave at right angles to the uh, to the plane. Uh, Otherwise, they would, I guess, disturb their uh, uh, their work. So, but if they leave at right angles to a disc, well, it it doesn't uh, affect one side more than the other. It just uh, uh, they're able to leave that way, and uh, and so the they end up. And what ends up is that they now have a spinning uh, galaxy that. Uh, continues by just ordinary gravitational influence. And then finally, I want to talk about the difference between linear gravity and uh, what would be the other? Linear and then... uh, Absolute gravity. Absolute gravity, which is the great what we're talking about, how all the universes, uh, the seven super universes portrayed in the uh, universe in the Urantia book, the grand universe, they're spinning around Havona, which spins around the Isle of Paradise. 
and that is the that's the residence of God. So let's talk about the differences between universal or absolute gravity and linear gravity and how they work in consonant with each other. All right. Yeah, uh, here's how I see that. Um, and by the way, George Park had some inform- interesting information in his paper on uh, that was first in the symposium, uh, and he distinguished, talked about absolute gravity and linear gravity. Um, well, the Arantia book says that linear gravity is an interactive thing. It's the gravity between two objects in space. But what holds the ultimaton, which is the first measurable uh, particle of energy, and that it it spins like mad, what holds it together? What What is uh, attracting uh, the material that it can spin that fast? Uh, and it and it's it's a very very a strong uh, strong attraction. Well, I would say it's the absolute gravity. It's the absolute gravity of paradise. Now, paradise is a little uh, is uh, not so easy to grasp because uh, the Arantia book says that. Roughly speaking, paradise is just above space in the sense that something called the unqualified absolute pervades space and is the source of energy. And that the unqualified absolute is focused in nether paradise, the underside of paradise. So somehow, paradise can have its nether side pervading space. What does nether mean? Underside? Underside? Underside. Yeah. So, so paradise somehow, its underside is above space pervading space but not in space it's in the focus of space right. so that um, when when there is space respiration uh, a kind of space inflation but not nearly as uh, extreme as our physicists are are using mm-hmm. space respiration is the expansion of space peripheral space, uh, space that has bodies, it just, the space itself expands and all the bodies also expand. They're carried in, carried by the space so that they're now further apart. And then, of course, it's a two billion year cycle. So there's first an expansion for a billion years and then a, a contraction for a billion years, and I presume that's sinusoidal, so it's you know gets out and slows down and stops, and then comes in the other direction. And uh, in the mid phase, it's going faster, uh, and then slows slows up, uh, and finally stops expanding, and then it goes in the other direction. So uh, 
that's what the, uh, the, the Arantia book describes. Now, the absolute gravity, I think, because they say the nucleus of each ultimaton is paradise. So each ultimaton somehow has a nucleus that is on is on paradise or is is uh, a paradise uh, part of the paradise area so how is that possible if new, uh, ultimate times are all over the place in space how can they each have uh paradise as its nucleus well we need a little different topology to explain that uh, of space uh need a different topology for space, it reminds me of uh, Plato's image that, uh, and of course, also our midway, midwayer friends who say, "How long before you regard time as the moving image of eternity and space as the fleeting shadow of paradise realities?" So uh, we think. Right now, we look out and we see space and we see things far away, but we forget we are the observer. Everything might be just here, <laughs> here in paradise, uh, and uh, we're, uh, we're looking out and seeing a reflected uh, light. And the time is uh, also uh, something that... Um, it's, a sh- it's a shadow, right? I mean, it's just a, a moment... Uh, we yeah. don't we don't have enough time to go into it, but you're bringing up something that uh, Einstein and his relativity everything is is in the now kind of now is sort of universal, uh, yes. which I like that concept because you know it, it almost like what is now what is time well is it shared universally are we all experiencing time at the same time um, which is why I don't believe in time travel because. It, that, that to me is just something I don't think that it mathematically could be worked out. It would no, be, I think you know. I think you're right. I don't think I th- we can uh, we can't go back uh, and we can't we go can forward. Only, uh, change the future. <laughs> That's right. And uh, yeah, yeah. Time is another one that uh, you know Einstein wanted to have no special reference frame. He wanted all reference frames to be relative and no no reference frame to be uh you know better than any other one and and therefore he could not have a center uh because that would have been the preferred reference frame so um but the Urantia book says uh, no uh, there is um a reference frame, and that means that we can tell time um, and simultaneity relative to it. So uh, we've got a ways to go before we can uh, undo uh, some of what Einstein was dabbling with, to yeah. use uh, his word, yeah. uh, and the Urantias. Right. They both use the word. word dabbling, right? Don't let your dabblings... And relatively, uh, relativity overshadow uh, the other possibilities that are existing. The other yeah. fact that there is a yeah. uh, a, a universal uh, plan. <laughs> it's not on an 
uncharted. There is a yeah. unity in the cosmos. That's right. <clears throat> that, uh, well, he he hinted at sometimes, but he didn't want to make it uh, a, anything like a deity. Right. Um, but uh, he talked about you know the mind of God. Uh, he knew there was a coer- co- coherence in the universe, uh, but he was not uh, ready to uh, uh, to give us any freedom of choice. The, apparently, our physicists th- seem to think that um, we couldn't have a way to in- introduce energy through a spiritual connection. Yeah. Apparently, they just don't like that idea. Uh, yeah, that it's, we uh, could right. Well, again, scientism it... change the future. Yeah, but you know, I mean, the placebo effect says that we can change ourselves. Uh, yeah, just because we believe something, and um, so. And the other thing, of course, is I don't think uh, you know the Urantia book defines life. It says. The meaning of life is its adaptability. And that uh, was a strange statement to me for a long time until it, be, it dawned on me that it is the adaptability of life that you cannot derive from the uniformity of physics and chemistry. There's no, you know, some people say, well, what's the probability that life could have emerged, you know, uh, from the from the physics and the chemistry, and my answer to that is zero, zero probability because physics and chemistry is uniform. But, well, they like this. They're starting to think that maybe quantum uh, mechanics has some some mysterious choice, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they want to give uh, choice to the quantum, but they don't want to give it to the human mind. That is an interesting postulate. Well, listen, uh, Dr. Philip Calabrese, uh, former professor, instructor, mathematician, uh, physicist, also work. Uh, are you still involved at all at, uh, in San Diego in, in giving instruction? Are you still teaching? And you were at uh, UCSD, correct? I, I, I taught my last course at UCSD in Fortran. <laughs> that was in 1983. Uh, well, you got out just in time. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Philip Calabrese. His writings and essays are available at urantia.org, as well as the Urantia Association websites. Or you can go to my website, urantiaradio.net, and I have a direct link to both of those websites. And so we'll see you soon on the next edition of the Urantia Radio Podcast. Thank you again for stopping by. I'm Jim Watkins. <laughs>